everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Bryn. I'm Will, and today we're thrilled to have Dr. Gary Smith with us. Gary is the Fletcher Jones Professor of Economics at Pomona College. After earning an undergraduate degree studying mathematics at Harvey Mudd College, he earned his PhD at Yale University, where he also used to teach. The topic of his talk at the Athenaeum and his most recent book is The AI Delusion, which extols the value of human judgment in a world where big decisions are more and more frequently left to computers. Thank you so much for joining us, Gary. Happy to be here. To get started, we like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, or a place when they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal life. Can you share one such moment with us? Well, I think like most people, there's been a lot of them. I mean, it'd be a pretty boring life if you just <laughs> stay on one path. But an interesting one for you guys is, uh, like you say, I went to Harvey Mudd, and I was on uh, the debate team at CMC for four years. And the topic the first year was resolved. The federal government should establish a national program of public works for the unemployed. And so I pivoted from math to econ because econ's got these two great things. It's got the rigor and it's got the realism. And there are a lot of fields where you got the rigor, like mathematics, and there are other fields I won't mention <laughs> where you got the realism but no rigor. And econ's got both of those things. And so it's just, it's really, it's really nice, nice fit for me. So you did still finish, uh, as far as I know, at Harvey Mudd with a degree in math. Yeah, at the time, you could only major in chemistry, math, physics, and engineering. Okay. Now I think they've thrown in biology and uh, computer science, but still, I couldn't major in econ. Actually, I've barely taken any classes in econ. <laughs> I took a couple at CMC from Orm Phelps, who was a legendary CMC professor, been here forever. And Yale liked me because I had the math, and economics in the graduate level is very mathematical, and so they liked that a lot. And then I had great mentors at Yale. So, mm -hmm. so looking at a lot of your articles that you wrote during your time at Yale and when you're back at Pomona, you actually read them. <laughs> a lot of them are about kind of weird statistical quirks yeah, that yeah. people perceive to be true. And I was really drawn in by a few of the titles because they were things that I've heard thrown around out there. And I'm curious. How did those ideas come up to you as potential research topics, and why have you chosen to devote so much of your research to these topics? Yeah, when, when I was at Yale, I, uh, I taught macroeconomics with James Tobin, and uh, I taught statistics because of my mathematical stuff. And they asked the students there, what would you like uh, added to the curriculum? And the two big winners were Marx and the stock market. And I said, well, I'll do the stock market. <laughs> and so I got, I got into it, and, and uh, Tobin really gave me some good pointers to get going. And I got into it. And as I went in, I discovered all these people trying to beat the market by coming up with these flimsy theories. You know, they'd ransack data and they'd find some correlation and they'd think it was real. And so that, that just fascinated me. And then I, as I went on, it wasn't just in the stock market. It's everywhere else. You find these people. They, they dredge through the data, ransack the data. Or as Coates said, another Nobel laureate, you torture the data long enough, it will confess. And they find these correlations which, on the face, don't make sense. <laughs> And yet they get published in papers because they're statistically significant. And so I, it's just very, very easy to find those things. And my, my, one of my previous books is Standard Deviations, Flawed Assumptions, Tortured Data, and Other Ways to Lie with Statistics. And so that's why I got into that was, was the stats in the stock market and all the crazy theories about how to beat the stock market. What's your next target for a statistical myth? Well, I'm doing a uh, – I haven't got a specific one, but I've got another book which is almost done. <laughs> Is written with Jay Cordes, who is a Pomona student. And he went out as a data scientist. He worked 15 years in the industry. And he came back with all these stories about the nutty stuff they do. <laughs> and so our next book is called The Ten Commandments of Data Science. And uh, it's got a little small stuff in there, but no 
no really big new stuff. I'm curious, uh, a lot of your recent work is focused on problems that, as the title of your talk at the Athenaeum suggests, yeah. exist in relying too much on computers uh, to solve problems in. Yeah. Is this discussion of data science going to focus again on what computers are getting wrong, or will it pivot towards what the data scientists themselves well, are missing? it's the data scientists that cause the problems. And so a lot of them are uh, math majors or CS majors who don't really know much about the real world. And they think if you got a lot of fancy math and write a lot of fancy codes, then the computer will give you the answers. And since computers are so smart, we should believe computers. And uh, the AI delusion that in, is that we should not believe computers because they really don't nothing to the world at all. They have, they're really good at focused, narrowly focused tasks, but they have no general knowledge, no common sense, no wisdom. And so the Ten Commandments of Data Science is kind of a combination of my theory and my examples with Jay's real life practical experience where all these people come up with these crazy things and they think they're real because there happens to be a statistical pattern. And uh, so, so it's all related. But the fault ultimately is with the, with the individuals, the people who believe the programs. I'm curious about one case of maybe yeah. data mistakes yeah. where uh, maybe you're going to want to point more towards the computer <laughs> because I think that it comes a little bit from your own academic experience. Yeah. In 2005, you wrote an article titled Bubble, Bubble, Where's the Housing Bubble, right, right. which concluded, among other things, uh, our evidence indicates that the bubble is not, in fact, a bubble. Buying a home at current market prices still appears to be an attractive long-term investment. It was a little more nuanced than that. And we looked at uh, 10 different cities, and we picked those mainly because we could get data for them. And some of the places we said were bubbly were up, up in uh, Palo Alto or Menlo Park up there. Mm -hmm. And then there were other places like Indianapolis and Dallas and Atlanta where, where they're not bubbly. And so like Indianapolis... You could buy a house for $135,000, or you could rent it for $15,000. And th there was no bubble there. I mean, the prices were fine, and prices have kept going up in Dallas and Indianapolis, places like that. Places like Miami was bubbly. San Bernardino was bubbly, places like that. Mm -hmm. That way of looking at it is exactly the right way of looking at it, which is you think of houses the same way you think about stocks, mm -hmm. is what is the income you get from it? And for a house, of course, it's the rent savings. And for stocks, it's the dividends. And instead of trying to predict stock prices or predict home prices, we just think about if I'm going to live in Indianapolis for 20 years, am I better off renting for 15000 a year with rents going up, or am I better spending 135000 to buy a house? And it's, it's just, <laughs> it's no question you're better off buying in Indianapolis. Other places are not so clear. Mm -hmm. yeah. So taking that idea of where should we place blame with the computer, with the data scientists, kind of to the future. Will and I are both in a computer science class at your alma mater currently. Um, okay. <laughs> and an article that we were just assigned, one of the quotes from it said, with enough data, the numbers speak for themselves. And this article was talking about how in today, in you know what they call the petabyte age, there's just so much data that the amount of information that we can process and even get a handle on is just far greater than human capacity. How do you see that as a challenge that researchers are going to face in the coming yeah, years? So that's exactly the thing I'm pushing back against, the idea that, da that data speak for themselves and that you can look through a bunch of data and find a pattern and think it's meaningful. And mm -hmm. the truth is you look through any data, even random numbers, and you'll always find patterns. And that doesn't mean they're meaningful. All it means is you spend a lot of time looking for patterns mm -hmm. and you gotta have your common sense and wisdom. And the idea that data come before theory is I think is a huge mistake in data science and computer science. But like I said before, that's what computer scientists believe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they think you can look through data, you have knowledge discovery. Who needs theory? Who needs a scientific method? It's enough to find a pattern. The data speak for themselves. Like Jay, the, my co-author on the next book, he says in, in business, he had this manager who just kept saying, up is up. <laughs> and so they find some little tweak and sales go up 
And Jay says, well, it doesn't make any sense. And they'd say, up is up. And then next month, they went back down. And they said, what happened? And he said, well, it was a blip. They said, what? And so I, I've, I, don't, I don't know what to say about your professor. If, if the professor is reading that as a, something to argue against or something to be believed. But mm -hmm. what's, what's the answer? Something to be believed? I'm not Apparently. certain. <laughs> I have more reading to do. I think that one of the main focuses of this article, too, was thinking about how in an age when there just is so much data right. that the human brain cannot possibly yeah. process, That's definitely true. that we may have to rely more and more on computer processing systems because we just don't have the capacity as human beings to do so. So I'm curious how kind of the tension between how much should we use computers um, and big data when we are not capable of processing data ourselves, I, I what, what do you think? I use, that? I use, I've written nearly 100 papers and 13 books, and I use computers extensively. And there's stuff, mathematical calculations, statistical calculations, Monte Carlo simulations. I just cannot do it in my lifetime without mm -hmm. computers. But what I what I am strong on is the scientific method, which is theory comes before data. Mm -hmm. And if you turn that on its head, all sorts of problems come up. So I'm taking an increasing number of quantitative classes, as I think students are pushed to do as they can continue to become advanced in whatever their major is. What are the kinds of things that students going from the realm of simple introductory theories towards doing their own analysis of the data should be careful about and should keep in mind as they're given their initial assignments? Well, I, I think, I mean, I have, a, I have a son who's a junior at Cornell. He's a computer science major. I got a son who's a software guy out in Cambridge. I got another son who's about to go to UCSD, made, probably major in decision science or computer science. And I think that the really good programs, like Jay got a master's in decision science from Berkeley, mm -hmm. and they teach scientific method is the way to go. And you can't just spot patterns and think that's the end of it. The data don't speak for themselves. <laughs> if you rely on that, you're going to end up with, with coincidental correlations that are transient and don't last. And so I think you need not just the math classes and the CS classes, you also got to take some classes that teach you about the world, teach you about economics and history and human behavior, psychology and stuff like that. So you can have theories and not just data. I'm curious as well whether your training in both mathematics and especially economics has taught you anything about the sides of human judgment, even if we're undervaluing it right now, that we need to be more careful about considering lessons from behavioral economics or anything else in the way that we approach day-to-day -day decision making. When I, when I was an undergraduate, uh, the economic models were all based on the assumption that rational people make perfect decisions with perfect information. And of course, that's, and at that time, the theorists were the high priests of economics. And uh, because they had their fancy mathematical theorems, you optimize, you maximize, you take derivatives, and you drive conclusions. And we used to say that was, that was the glory of economics, is that we actually had substance. We had theories as opposed to other disciplines, which are merely descriptive. And then, of course, uh, Kahneman Tversky turned that stuff on its head by pointing out ways in which people are not perfectly rational. And then a lot of other people, like Joe Stiglitz, pointed out how people are not perfectly informed. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's but it's it's not just everything's up in the air and everything's random. People make uh, mistakes in predictable ways, like that book, predictably irrational. And it's like people look at sunk costs, people ignore regression to the mean, people make these mistakes, anchoring, and so. Once you understand the mistakes, you kind of modify your understanding of human behavior. And the same way Stiglitz, another Nobel laureate, devoted his life to thinking about cases where we have imperfect information, asymmetric information, when the insurance company knows more than you do, how that affects markets and stuff like that. And so that's great stuff. It's exciting stuff. So over the course of your career as a professor and academic, I think that most of the course of the information revolution up to date has happened during that same period of yeah. time. 
What's been the biggest change that you've seen in your work and in the work of your peers? I think, <laughs> going back to James Tobin, <clears throat> he used to say in the bad old days, calculations were so hard that people thought before calculating. It was just so much work. And then when the computers came along, it's so easy to do the calculations and worry about the theories later. And so you get this huge, like you said, the terabytes of data, and you got the fast computers, and so you ransack the data and find some theories, find, find some patterns and correlations, and then you think of the theories afterwards. And that's a huge mistake. And so I think the revolution is, is two-sided. One, I can do a lot of things like Monte Carlo simulations, a million simulations of very complicated situations I could never do before, and that's terrific. On the other hand, it's opened the door for people who data mine and come up with worthless theories. That has been the huge revolution. That's the tension. Is do you stay with the scientific method or do you go to the data speak for themselves? Up is up. Mm -hmm. In your ath introduction, there was a uh, there was a pretty striking comparison between the industrial revolution and the information revolution, mm -hmm. and that's a, a theme that I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. And what do you think we can learn from human response to the industrial revolution applied to today? Yeah, I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. The industrial revolution obviously took people off the farms and into the factories and not always necessarily for the better. I mean, it improved their standard of living, but also in many ways was a miserable life compared to their previous lives. And now we've got the information revolution. When I was at, going to Harvey Mudd, there was a professor at Pitzer who taught about uh, jobs are going to be obsolete within 10 years because of the massive computers are, are improving so fast. And of course, that missed by a lot. <laughs> and so far, all, all the all the predictions that computers are going to make human behavior, human work obsolete have so far proven false. But I think we make it a point where we don't know. We don't know. It may actually happen. There's going to be a lot of people who don't have critical thinking skills. And you got robots who are doing the things that don't require critical thinking. And so what do you do with those people? And it's, that, is, that is a big question for the future. And like people talk about income inequality. And often picketing people like that write as if the rich have gotten richer. And they haven't. What's happened is the rich today are a lot richer than the rich in the past, but they're not the same people. And 90% of the people who used to be in the Fortune 400, top 400, they're not there anymore. And so you got the oil barons, the Carnegies, and the Rockefellers, and the DuPonts, and they're, all, they're not in the, the top 400 anymore. And they've been replaced by computer titans. And, and so they've been replaced by Larry Ellison and Zuckerberg and the, the, the Google boys and Bill Gates. And they are just so much wealthier than the wealthy people in the past. And so the wealth distribution just pulling apart into people who have the critical thinking skills and the entrepreneurs and then the other people. And what, how do you, how do you solve that problem? That, that is a big question. I don't know what's gonna happen. But. One aspect of the distributional effects yeah. of the kind of dominance of these tech-centric firms yeah. that I've heard some economists talk about is that while it was true initially in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s dot-com boom, that it was a new generation of leaders, that the frontier firms, especially the really just like the five biggest ones, are so established now that it's unlikely that any real competitors could ever make a run at them without getting bought out or uh, otherwise smothered from entry into real competition. Yeah, that, that, could, that could be a problem. I remember the Microsoft antitrust suit when they thought Microsoft was going to control everything. And of course, that, that didn't happen, although Microsoft is still standing. <laughs> but its place has been taken by the Amazons and the Apples and the Googles and stuff like that. And you have these companies that do come and go, like Yahoo at one point was, a, was an industry darling and one of the most valuable companies in the world, and now it's gone. And so, but it, but it is true. How do you how do you start? How do you compete with Amazon? How do you compete with Apple? It, it's tough. 
I think that is a real problem in terms of monopoly. We, we live in what's called a winner-take-all society. And so a lot of people may start a social media company, but once one gets going and everybody's lined up there, why would anyone go anywhere else unless there's a really good reason to do so? And so it's really hard to crack into that. Or Amazon. Once Amazon has taken over what it, what has taken over, how do you how do you compete with Amazon? It's, mm-hmm. it's a real dilemma. And this it's the winner take all society. And the, the consequence of that also is the Jeff Bezos and the and the Mark Zuckerbergs are fabulously wealthy because it's a winner take all society. Mm-hmm. So pivoting to a more academic issue. Will and I were both really interested in the eclectic nature of your research interests. You've done research on things ranging from strange statistical anomalies to immigration and immigration mobility to housing bubbles. So I'm curious as a student about how you as an academic approach research. How do you choose a topic and how do you develop your research question? Well, part of it was part of it was when I went into finance, it had what I wanted, the, the rigor and the realism. And also, you can make some money, so that was <laughs> that was kind of irresistible. <laughs> it's never bad. <laughs> and so, I stuck with the the finance and the stats because I, I love them, and of course, they're profitable. And the other thing is, I had tenure for a long, long time, and so I could write about whatever I want to write about. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about being an academic is you don't have some boss telling you what to do, like poor Jay Cordes. <laughs> You guys have seen The Office, right? He said he lived The Office. (laughs) (laughs) And crazy bosses and stuff like that. And uh, as an academic, you can do pretty much whatever you want to do. And I just, something comes across my, you know, I see something. Our former student sends me something. I said, that sounds crazy. And then I look into it and I investigate it further. And I just do whatever I want to do. And so you look at my list of publications. It's very eclectic, extremely eclectic. (laughs) We've only got time for one more question, sure. which is the last question uh, for all of our guests. And that is, what is your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves? Well, I have students ask me, like one time a student asked me, should I go into management consulting or iBanking? And I gave them the Chinese proverb, which is, if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. And, and I'd say you got your family, you got your uh, romance, and you've got a job you love. And what could be better than that? Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Gary, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. (laughs) Thank you for having me.